The whole world is wrapped by the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests springing up in hundreds of cities across the U.S. and Canada. No justice, no peace. 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 Floyd is the latest example in centuries of racism that has affected Americans, but Canada isn't immune to subordinating a group based on race. I'm Dave McIver. And I'm Adam Toy, and this is Why. to not sit here and act like we had a funeral on the schedule. George Floyd should not be among the deceased. He did not die of common health conditions. He died of a common American criminal justice malfunction. The Reverend Al Sharpton at George Floyd's funeral in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, Dave, as we've seen this country and all 50 of the United States erupt into protest over the treatment of African Americans, of black people in the U.S., I couldn't help but think of people of the same complexion north of the border. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, do you remember the conversations we had a few months ago with Global's Allie Wilson about Juneteenth and the University of Calgary social work professor David Est about the black migration from Oklahoma to the prairies? Well, I'd like to take that conversation further and find out what it's like for people of color living in Canada today. Adam, so much of this conversation has been about education and educating yourself, and that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to learn more and learn how to help. So I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to mute my mic, and I'm just going to listen, and I'm going to learn. Dave, let's bring in our first guest. Cheryl Fogo is a multiple award-winning author, playwright, and filmmaker whose work focuses on the lives of Western Canadians of African descent and joins us now. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Cheryl, I feel like for our listeners' benefit, we should set the table a little bit here because being an audio format, they can't see us. I'm biracial. My father's Chinese, my mother's white. And you are a black woman, fair to say. I, that's absolutely fair to say. Yes, I am a black woman. I was reading Stokely Carmichael and Charles V. Hamilton's Black Power, The Politics of Liberation in America last night, and it has a really eloquent definition of individual and institutional racism. I have experienced some individual racism, but I'm fortunate enough to appear white enough that I haven't necessarily had to deal with that much institutional racism as Canada's black community. But we wanted to have you on to talk about your expertise in the lives of Western Canadians of African descent, of black Canadians in Western Canada. I'm, I'm a descendant of the black migration of 1910, is what we generally call it. So uh, I have listened to your uh, episode on Juneteenth and 
David Est talked on that, a little bit about this migration of approximately 1,500 to 2,000 African Americans who came up to Western Canada between, it was actually between 1905 and 1912, and I am a descendant of that migration. If anybody listening hasn't had an opportunity to, to dip into that history, I would totally suggest the documentary that uh, David Est uh, worked on about uh, that migration. It's a fascinating part of history that I didn't I didn't learn about growing up, and uh, I mean, it, it took a number of decades for, for, for me to travel around the sun in, in order to, to learn about that. But I wanted to talk about, uh, start with your work on John Ware's life. Um, part of part of your work, documenting his life, uh, you've written a play about it, and if I understand correctly, you're working on a documentary about his life to recreate his life? Yes. Maybe, you know, just to offer a little bit of background, racism manifests in many different ways. You know, institutional racism is absolutely a huge problem, systemic racism, individual racism, of course, and they all come from the same root, and one of the ways that it manifests is that sometimes, and in the case of John Ware, this is what has happened, an individual is sort of selected out, pulled out to represent how Canada likes to think of itself when we talk about race here. So his was was on the surface quite a positive story. You know, he was a formerly enslaved man who came to southern Alberta in 1882, stayed became a very successful rancher. Prior to that, he was a very successful and talented cowboy and a manager of horses and cattle and whatnot. Um, And the way John Ware's story has been told over the years is not 100% accurate. And I think one of the reasons for that is because his story has never been told before by a person of African descent um, until I, I started my work on re- reclaiming is, is basically what I call it. My film is called John Ware Reclaimed. My play was called John Ware Reimagined. And I, at this point, I'm also planning to write a book that will be called John Ware Re-something. I haven't decided on the title yet. Uh, yeah, but John Ware... Many people think he was the only black person in the region in the late 1800s. That's not true. He wasn't even the only black cowboy and ranch worker. Um, He wasn't even the only black person who established a homestead. Uh, And he wasn't the first. There were, he, he came into a small community of people of African descent that were already down here. So in many ways, John Ware's story needed an update. I happened to have a personal connection to his story in that um, I was a huge cowboy fan as a kid. Uh, My brother and I were both um, very firmly planted in that world. I mean, we grew up in Calgary, and that, I guess, is no surprise. Most kids, you know, went through a cowboy phase down here back in the day. but it was through the, through the discovery of the existence of John Ware that I was able to, in some ways, reconcile these two different aspects of my own history that I had previously felt didn't 
match up very well because if you look, if you think about the 50s and 60s when I was growing up, the notion that there were black cowboys was never addressed, never. There was no representation whatsoever of people of African descent in the wide, wide, wide body of media about cowboys and horses. So I loved discovering and unfolding the story of John Ware when I was in my early 20s and starting starting to think about being a writer and telling the stories of African-descended Western Canadians. But I found many, many, many problematic aspects in the way that his story was told. So as you mentioned, I'm working on a documentary film. I'm in the, in the sort of getting close to the fine editing stage, and it'll soon be ready to launch. Of course, right now, because we're in the midst of a pandemic, there are questions about when and where we're going to be able to share it with the world. But I'm really excited to be able to do that. I'm excited to see the work as well. I haven't I, I haven't had a chance to see the play that you wrote, but I did hear many great things about it. Um, but one thing that that strikes me about the I guess I'll say common knowledge of John Ware's life is that he did face, to to little surprise, racism in Alberta uh, when he was uh, uh, living in that province. I'm wondering if through your research you can speak to whether or not the experience that um, Western Canadians of African descent has changed materially since the time of John Ware? Well, I get asked that question or a variation of it very often. Sometimes people phrase it as how things got gotten better. And I don't really know how to answer that question because I think if people, when people are experiencing racism of the variety that we as people of African descent and, and other peoples of color experience in this province, how can, you, how can you really quantify it? Any amount of racial discrimination is completely unacceptable, and it's astonishing that in 2020 we are still dealing with the kinds of racism that leads to people's deaths or, or injury, um, and, and this is 100% because of racism. Uh, so I, I don't really know, I don't really have an answer for that question. Um, yes, things have changed. Um, racism has, it, it's a very tricky beast that is able to shift around very quickly. It adapts very quickly to use different methods to, to achieve the same ends that it has always been used for. You alluded to this a little bit uh, earlier, but you mentioned that Canada's multiculturalist policies. And, and I, I think, or I've experienced that, that Canadians broadly like to wrap themselves in this flag of multiculturalism and, and the government's multiculturalist immigration policies. Wondering what your thoughts are on the perception of Canada as a multiculturalist country and the reality that you have lived as a black woman in Western Canada. Well, I think we have not been, um, how to put this, we don't know our own history in Canada. We do not, we, we get a, a very narrow 
version of Canadian history to the schools. That was the case in my day. It was the case in my kids' day. It's the case of kids in schools right now. We don't get an education that encompasses the negative aspects of our history. So on some level, it is not surprising that Canadians do not understand the extent of racism that has been a part of our history from the very beginning, even though everyone knows we, you know, this, this land was stolen from people who were here. And then we, we, we had generation, of gen, generation after generation of policies designed to disenfranchise and disadvantage the people who were living here. When, when settlers started coming. We just don't know our history. Therefore, I think, sometimes I put it, you know, in my film what I say is, uh, in my story of John Ware, he is more than a prop in the happy kind of bedtime story that Canadians like to tell ourselves. Um, we We just simply don't know our history. We haven't had access to it. We don't, People, I think, still don't learn about residential schools throughout their education and the terrible, terrible legacy, the devastation that those policies brought about. And people certainly don't even learn, don't, we don't even learn about our own black history. Black history is just history, right? It should be embedded in every history curriculum across the country, but it's not there. So we not only don't learn about anti-black racism in schools, we don't even learn just simply about our, our black history. I didn't know that about John Ware, that he wasn't the only black cowboy in the late 1800s. Right? And that's just one example of the systemic racism we've been living under in Western Canada. But I want to go to Eastern Canada now, Toronto specifically, the largest city in the country with the largest black community in the country. Anthony Morgan is a racial justice lawyer and the manager of the City of Toronto's Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit and joins us from Toronto. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the the work that you do as both a racial justice lawyer and the manager of this Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit. It seems to me that you are trying to address systemic racism. Last night I was doing some reading of from uh, Stokely Carmichael and Charles V. Hamilton's uh, Black Power, the Politics of Liberation in America, published in 1967, but just as relevant today, I feel, they describe institutional racism as less overt, far more subtle, less identifiable in terms of specific individuals committing the acts, but is no less destructive of human life originating in the operation of established and respected forces in society and thus receives far less public condemnation than the first type. These protests that we're seeing across the United States and Canada and around the world really are are really decrying this institutional racism. I'm wondering if you can speak to how you and your work are trying to address that and what you've seen, successes and, and not. First, I want to say it's really important that you brought back that very powerful and important quote from 1968 to show that there are systems and structures and even language to describe what black communities have been experiencing for a long time. And I really want to stress, of course, that it's not just an American phenomenon, of course, and that's why we have in the city of Toronto, so as a part of the municipal government of the city of Toronto, my team, the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit. So how are we trying to address that uh, systemic racism 
I want to speak to that. So we have what's called a Toronto Action Plan to confront anti-black racism. And it was unanimously adopted by City Council in December 2017. And it aims to address anti-black racism in various forms, looking at job opportunities and income supports, policing and the justice system, black community leadership and community engagement, community services, and child and youth development. And so there are 22 recommendations and 80 actions that the city has committed to implementing specifically to address anti-black racism so that we get it at a systemic or institutional uh, uh, route. I think it's perhaps easier to understand individual racism as, uh, you know, individuals acting out in a racist manner against black, indigenous people or racialized Canadians. I'm wondering if you can speak to how this institutional racism, this this systemic racism, uh, specifically affects black Canadians. And if, you, and if you can provide some specific examples. You mentioned a little bit in your description, but I'd like to have our audience hear them specifically. The definition that the City of Toronto has officially adopted about of what anti-black racism is could help me uh, answer that. So we define anti-black racism as policies and practices that are embedded within our institutions and that reflect and reinforce, and here's the subtlety part, biases, attitudes, stereotypes, prejudice, prejudices that are directed towards people of African descent and rooted in our unique histories and experiences of enslavement in Canada. Now, what does that mean? So there are stereotypes about black people being dangerous. And what does that mean when an institution doesn't stop and say, hey, we understand that this stereotype is out there. We want to make sure that in our policies and practices, we are not reinforcing or supporting the idea that black people are dangerous or violent or criminal or black moms are unfit parents or that black men are, are all involved in uh, gun and gang activity or that black children are not as intelligent as their other counterparts. And so these are systems, processes that can become part of our, our workplaces. It could become part of our family conversations subtly. So it's not that people are overtly saying that, oh, these things are okay, but they might be sharing memes um, in, their, in their friend circle or sharing memes, uh, or what I mean by memes are like uh, things on the internet, jokes and things that are meant to poke fun at, uh, at different instances in society, but can reinforce negative ideas about who black people are. And so when you have an institution, whether it be your workplace, your school, your job, your faith community, that doesn't stop and say, hey, these are negative images that we continue to circulate about black people, but they're not actually based on the actual factual reality of the diversity of black communities. All of that would speak to whether or not one would know the history of, because our conversation is is centering about the Canadian experience, but the black history in Canada. Uh, I mean, black history in America is pretty well known. I think the, the, the Coles notes are, you know, slave trade bringing hundreds of thousands of Africans to America's shores, the Emancipation Proclamation, Civil Rights Act to, to a lot of folks that seems to be the, the beginning and the end. Um, but Canada's black history is a little less known. Um, and in my experience, the most commonly part that is taught in Canadian schools is the Underground Railroad. What are people missing in Canada's black in, in, in understanding Canada's black history and how does how do you think that that affects what black Canadians are going through on a day-to-day basis in this country? 
Yeah, I think it has a dramatic impact because a lot of Canadians and uh, even many black Canadians, because we go to the same school, see the same media, and are part- and, and participating in a lot of uh, similar social circles, we don't always have that contact ourselves here in Canada. But the interesting thing is that the Underground Railroad, for instance, lasted between 30 and 50 years within the history of, of, of its existence. Um, but the practice of the enslavement of people of African descent on these same lands, Canada, actually lasted for 206 years. So from the years 1628 to the year 1834, black people could be legally enslaved on the lands that are now called Canada. Now, why that's important, of course, when you think of that number, 206, we have to take a moment and pause and think about, well, how old is this country forming the dominion of Canada? It's less than 160 years. So why that's important, it's not just about math, it's about recognizing for a moment that the practice and laws that supported the enslavement of people of African descent on these lands actually has existed on these lands longer than the institution of Canada as a formalized country existed on these lands. And so if we're not teaching that information in our school, that two more than two-century period of black people being in chains, sold like like chattel, like like cattle, like items of property, because they were, uh, then and then instead hide that 206 years, instead focus on that 30 to 50 year period of the Underground Railroad, we will create and we have created a society that doesn't know itself. It doesn't know its truth. That would have a, 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 a quite a psychological effect for 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 blacks and non-blacks, uh, whereas for 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 both groups there is this perception that Canada is you know a, a, a shining beacon on a hill as far as racism goes. We 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 uh, often Canadians broadly often point to oh well, we're a multicultural country uh, this idea of pluralism, um, but the history would belie that. And so when a country has this history of um of of as you said slavery and then and and there's anti-black racism throughout the country to have that all denied publicly and officially but then have it experientially happening to what's now been generations of black canadians that it, it it seems to me that there's it's it's a different psychological impact for for canadians than americans who american slave black slavery is out in the open yeah, it, it speaks to uh, what I've referred to as Canadian racial exceptionalism. The idea that we as a country, Canada, we are exceptional people. Other countries have race problems, uh, especially the United States, but we're better than that, Canadian racial exceptionalism. And so part of our den- identity is very much rooted in that. And so it becomes difficult for all Canadians, but especially black Canadians, to say, oh, wait, hold on. But what about this history of the Ku Klux Klan in my city? And there, there's a lot of information about Ku Klux Klan forces being in Canadian cities and burning crosses on Canadian lawns or histories of signs saying uh, no Jews, no dogs, no blacks. Well, how do we actually have that conversation in an honest, open and real way when we have this society that says no, to be can- Canadian means that we do not admit and we do not confront and we do not engage the, the, the more difficult parts of our history that make us look too much like the United States. And so that, that has a dramatic psychological impact because black 
members of communities, they want to speak up and say, it doesn't mean they all want to take to the streets and protest, but they might have an uncomfortable interaction with a coworker or a friend or in a social setting, and they might want to say, hey, that, that actually made me feel really uncomfortable. It felt like a, a kind of uh, anti-black bias, and, and I, I'm not saying that your whole life you've been a racist, but I want to let you know how I feel. But many black Canadians don't feel they have that space to be able to say those things honestly. And so the psychological impact of that is it, it can be suffocating. It creates a, a suffocating experience of being black in Canada. Suffocating, the, that term is, is rather um, poignant in these, these times, given that uh, in all 50 states, and I think the count, is, the count that I saw is 18 different countries, uh, you know, scores of, of, of cities across Canada protesting for Black Lives Matter and, and, and against uh, police brutality after the, de- the suffocation death of, of George Floyd. Um, it, it, something that strikes me is that there are, that, that, that police brutality on, uh, on black people is not a uniquely Canadian event. Um, Regis Korchinski Piquette, I know that that's currently being investigated, uh, but that's, that's a name that came out in the last, what, month. But I know that there are other, other names going back across many, many uh, communities in Canada. If it's, um, I got this list from David Est of the University of Calgary, uh, 2017, Pierre Carlon in Montreal, 2016, uh, Abdehaman, I believe is how you say his name, Andrew Luke in 2015, uh, Jermaine Carby in 2014, 2013, Ronell Douglas. Again, I'm, uh, all of this information I got from, from David Est, but I, I there, it, it's, it seems to me a, a parallel that, of that, or the, that, the 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 fact that those names aren't co- as commonly known as a George Floyd, or as a an Emmett Till, or as a uh, Martin Luther King Jr., or a, a Breonna Taylor, or Philando Castile, uh, that also speaks to Canada's racial exceptionalism. It does, unfortunately. Again, we are very much invested in holding the Canadian line. When I say we as Canadians, I was born and raised here, but even that doesn't matter. I'm just Canadian, and uh, I know by going to our schools, by participating in our uh, different social activities, I understand that it is impolite to suggest that Canada has the same racial problems in different ways, but definitely uh, these, these killing of black people where no police officer is held accountable, that is very common and consistent. That crosses the 49th parallel of, of our border. And so again, we have this tendency to hide or diminish or hush that history or continue to say that, oh, no, 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 that's an exception. That's just an exception. But if you do do a Google search, uh, you'll see that, uh, for instance, in Toronto, the, uh, although Toronto is not all representative of, of the entire country by any means, uh, Toronto has found that with its Toronto Police Service, in the last uh, six or so years, Black people are 20 times more likely to be killed by police than their non-black counterparts. And of uh, all the people that uh, the Toronto Police Service sadly has has killed in that period, 70% of them have been black, 70%. And this is in a city that has only had a black population that amounts to at most 8.5%. So again, just 8.5% of the overall population of the city, but 70%, 70% 70%, 70% of those who've been killed by police have been black. So there's obviously a deep and troubling challenge here. But also I want to, I really want to stress, 
for folks who are who want to say who might want, might think that well that's a Toronto thing Toronto has its own issues, but a research study was conducted by by the CBC uh, and also reinforced by the Globe and Mail to show that across the country, Black and Indigenous people are dramatically overrepresented among those who are Quebecers. So it's not a Toronto phenomenon. It's, it's the point I'm trying to make. It is a Canadian-wide phenomenon of Black people being disproportionately represented. I'm not saying they're the only people. They are just alarmingly overrepresented among the folks who are killed by uh, police services across our country. And this, again, is for a population that is, at now, we are at about 3.5% of the overall population, but uh, uh, higher than that when it, when it comes to instances of police use of lethal force that takes a black life. So then as a racial justice lawyer and as in, through your work with the city of Toronto, what are your thoughts on defunding police? And there's also the, the eight recommendations, I think, that are making their way around social media. What are your thoughts on, on, on that as a vector, an agent of change? Yeah, so I, I, I think it's, it's, it's well-placed when you think about the ways in which we as a society have to be very prudent about our financial resources. No matter what city you're in, uh, no matter what level of government, we have to be prudent. But what we're finding is that in our cities, especially in the city of Toronto, with those limited financial resources, there is a dramatic disparity between the funding that goes to police versus the funding that goes into child care services, the funding that goes into youth programming, arts and culture programming, leisure, public health, uh, food programs, housing, even our schools. So because we only have a set number of dollars to work with, when you give too much resources to the police, that only leaves you so much for the services that we rely on on a lot more for our, our daily sense of well-being, belonging, and, and uh, the health of our society more generally. And so we're not going to be able to fix these problems until we dramatically close that gap. And that means reinvesting in communities. Folks frame it as defunding the police, but it, it's more about reinvesting in communities where we've uh, under-invested in our communities. And that's what we're seeing in Indigenous communities, Black communities, people living with disabilities, elderly folks, comparatively, we've dramatically underfunded in our people, and that's why these problems persist. What happened to Floyd happens every day in this country, in education, in health services, and in every area of American life. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. Please stay tuned to future episodes of This Is Why, where we look at the long-standing racism Indigenous peoples have had to face in this land we call Canada, and we'll look at what we can do as a country to move forward. This Is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca, and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend and give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you soon.